0: As a society, we're reassessing our societal norms around what's okay when it comes to political speech, what candidates say, um, and what the what the consequences should be for what they say. Because a lot of the uh, information being pushed out there to sow distrust in the election process was actually out there in the open. It's not like it was hidden. It was them saying it, you know, candidates themselves saying it, and other prominent figures, um, which means it's not necessarily about like uncovering it. It's like, how do you properly counter
1: it?
2: Welcome to Politics Is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong
1: And I'm Charlie Bruce, graduate of the Masters of Public Policy program at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at UVA. Joining us this episode is Katie Harbeth.
2: She's the chief executive at Anchor Change and a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Previously, she was a public policy director at Facebook, now Meta, where over the course of over a decade, she was credited with building out and leading a 30-person global team responsible for managing elections. Prior to Facebook, Katie held strategic digital roles at the Republican National Committee, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, DCI Group, and multiple campaigns. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there is going to be some 65 elections across 54 countries in 2024, and one of the organizations that you work with, the Integrity Institute, just launched an elections best practices guide for online companies to help build, better support healthy elections across platforms. Um, I wonder if you can talk begin by just talking a little bit about what platforms are currently doing in elections programs and where you think they should be headed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of companies' elections programs, I mean, frankly, at at Facebook and Google and even some of the early companies, it actually goes back as far as 1996. I did a brief history of this through my work at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and between those very early days until we got through the 2016 election, a lot of that work was about more sort of proactive work of helping people to register, to vote, to understand when election day was, who was going to be on their ballot, kind of more civic um, empowerment type of tools. After the 2016, not just the U.S. election, but elections in Philippines and the Brexit election, um, a lot of these companies started to build out their election integrity programs. And so this looks like it could be political and issue ad transparency it was work around mis and disinformation uh coordinated inauthentic behavior all sorts of different things that that the companies would do um at its peak at facebook we had over 40 different teams and 500 full-time employees that were working on elections around the globe and that didn't include the um I think it started at 30,000, but then moved up to 40,000 contractors who do uh, safety and security type work. So it's kind of your content moderators and others who are um, contractors in addition to full-time staff at the company. Um, Google also had had a big program, though it looked a little bit different. It still does. Um, Twitter's obviously changed, but Twitter was doing some work in this space. Um, and now it continues to evolve. And so, you know, companies like, you know, the most recent elections that happened in Thailand and Turkey, uh, both Meta and TikTok had put out public statements about the things that they were doing around those elections. You're not seeing as much from Twitter anymore in the in the post in the Elon Musk era that we're seeing. We are seeing, though, there's a lot of emerging platforms. So your discords, your Twitches, uh, places like that. Um, are trying to figure out, you know, they have some policies like um, around mis and disinformation of which elections can be a part of that. There's others like Blue Sky had posted something the other week about telling people, please don't invite heads of state to be on Blue Sky because we aren't quite sure yet how to deal with them um, and what to do about them. Uh, there has been, you know, Substack's been in the news around some of its content moderation things. And so you have a little bit right now of sort of some of the legacy platforms that are going through their own evolutions and changes, especially with the layoffs. And then these newer platforms who are kind of going through this for the first time. And I would include TikTok in that honestly, because this is gonna be the first presidential election in the US when TikTok is really gonna be a focus for a lot of different reasons around that. And so the guide that you mentioned that we put together is really meant to help companies, whether you've been at this for a while or if you're, you're new to it, of how to develop frameworks about thinking about the many variety of problems um, and things that you have to think about it when it comes to elections work and how your platform might play a role in those elections.
1: What lessons do you have from your time at Facebook for how platforms can prevent and address mis- and malinformation elections?
0: So the first one on ChatGPT, and let's just say AI tools in general, right? Because ChatGPT is just text-based, but there's obviously Dolly, which is an image generator. Bing has its tools. There's so many tools that are popping up. Now, I think that, so there's, with any technology, there's good things and bad things that that could come out of this. So On the good side, you know, campaigns, particularly if you are running a house campaign or even um, for lower office, you don't always have that much money and staff uh, to be running your campaigns. And so you could really utilize AI to help you. For instance, uh, Google has a, a beta tool called Tailwind that's meant to be here's all of the like documents I've written, here's all the op eds I've written, and train an AI model on that. And then you can have a staffer that I could just be like, write an email in my candidate's voice on this topic. Uh, and then also write me a Facebook post, Instagram post, tweet, et cetera, and it'll generate it all for you. That's a huge time saver, right? There's also gonna be, and this is also gonna be kind of a good and bad, but for generating A-B testing of different types of emails, different types of ads, all of that, that's gonna be able to generate a lot faster. Now, that also means an increase in volume in that amount of content, which brings its own transparency concerns and researchers being able to sift through all of that. That was already a problem for the platforms. It's now even gonna get get bigger. Um, I think too, we have to remember that, because we'll get into the negative sides here next, that um, AI tools can also be used to detect when AI is used to create these things. So Google already has some tools around this and others do as well around helping people to detect if something was written by AI, if it's an image or video, the tools are not perfect. It's going to take a while for them to, they'll never be perfect. It'll take a while for them to get better, but they do exist. On the flip side, you know, the thing everyone is talking a lot about is going to be the ability to quickly generate potentially false content, false videos, false audio of stuff that candidates. Never said, um, and putting that out into the internet to get amplified and just confuse people all around. And I think that's a very valid concern. I'm most um, worried about audio because that gives you less contextual clues to be able to tell if something's true or not. And I've even had a friend who um, uh, was a victim of and, well, those AI phone scams where uh, somebody called up her mom, making her mom think she had been kidnapped. And they had taken her voice off of a podcast like this one to to do that. So um, so it's happening a lot in the in the audio, the audio space. Um, I think, you know, there's been some bills introduced into Congress about whether or not these things should be labeled, which kind of goes into your your second question about handling mis and disinformation and this stuff overall. So I think that, you know, the problem with fact checking programs is that it always takes time to actually fact check these things. Even in, with something like Twitter's blue sky, um, you know, there's different models around this to, to look at. But then there's also questions of, do you label it so that people know that it was created by, by AI? And let me tell you, the number of things that people want to label on pieces of content when most people are watching it on their phone is gonna be very tricky of both being like, oh, it's a political ad and it was generated by AI and it was this and this and this. So we're going to have a UX problem here in terms of user design and user research of thinking about these things. But I encourage these platforms. A lot of them have policies around this type of stuff, but it's the execution that's difficult. And so I, you know, one of the things that I kind of always wish that like the Facebook, Googles, Twitters of the world back in the day were really realistic about, yes, we can have these policies written, but like in terms of being reactive versus proactive and finding this content that might be problematic is actually, it's much harder to do in practice. Um, Writing the policy is easy. Finding it and and implementing it is harder. And so I think being real honest about that um, and opening more of this stuff up to be transparent. I really like how OpenAI for chat for GPT-4 brought in researchers and they did threat analysis and red teaming to try to kick the tires and identify potential problematic uses of this technology. And they they released a report on that. They were very open um, about what those types of things are. And so I would encourage other platforms to
2: think about the same. Um, you're presaging so many other questions we we want to ask, but as the as platforms currently exist, what are ways that um that they are addressing coordinated and authentic behavior and and how will that need to to improve as as this is developed as the technology is developing so quickly?
0: Well, I think the thing about this work and any adversarial work um is that you know the bad actors keep getting more sophisticated too <laughs> um as the companies do and so um we we always said this when I was at Facebook and it's true is that this is a bit of a cat and a mouse game. There's never a finish line. There's never a point in time where we're going to be like, we got it all solved. We figured it out because as you close loopholes, other ones appear and, and also bad actors, you know, they're also moving to different platforms. So they might not be utilizing like the Facebooks and Googles as much because they have programs to find them and implement this. So they move to the gabs and true socials of the world, um, or the telegrams or even podcasts and radio. And so we've seen a lot of decentralization too, of this, of this work. And one of the biggest challenges is how do you track this from platform to platform? Um, and how do you do that when some platforms are just, uh, reluctant to do any sort of this work at all, um, in terms of, of policing it. And so I think that, um, And so they're going to and this is going to be happening both foreign and domestic. Domestically, you also in the U.S., you had the political situation of what's happening with House Republicans, you know, and all the hearings around um, these these coordinate these this work that's been done, like the Election Integrity Partnership and others uh, to do this. And that can have a chilling effect on on companies even wanting to wade into this because they might not want to be pulled into the political spotlight. The challenge there is that I tell all these companies you can run, but you can't hide from politics. Like if you are a place where people are and they want to be, it's going to be a place that that politicians want to be. Political content's going to happen, um, especially as you're in a presidential election year. And so you're better off thinking now how you want to deal with it rather than right in the middle of
2: a lot of different things happening. So I have a follow up question. So you mentioned the that there, there are tools that are being developed to, to catch and detect some of, of the AI um, uh, content that's being produced. What advice do you have for users um, on the other end of this, you know, while we're waiting for the, techno- the detection technology to catch up? And, you know, is there a way to actually critically consume material? Um, but, you know, I think, I think we shouldn't just rely on that, but, but what should consumers know?
0: Yeah, I think first and foremost that these tools are new, um, that a lot of this work, you know, will be ongoing and we're going to see, the only thing I can promise is a lot of change over the next uh, bare minimum 18 months, if not longer. Um, and so to be prepared for a lot of different tools, a lot of different ways that we could see information being pushed out there. And I think, you know, it all is about, all about kind of going back to basics, um, if you're seeing a story who's the source of it is there a reporter listed um what is the date on it um there is tools available you know the google has a reverse image lookup so that you can you know investigate that a little bit further um if you know if something's kind of if you're like that doesn't seem right or that's odd or i haven't seen it anywhere else search for it see if you can find it in in other places um i also think too that there's an element of like, it's going to be okay to be wrong and to realize you thought something was real that wasn't. I'll fully admit, I really wanted that Pope in the white puffer jacket to be real. Like when I first saw it, I was like, huh, wouldn't have expected that from him, but well done. Like, you know, and it wasn't until a few days, like I think a day or two later that people were like, this thing is, this thing is fake. Um, And so we're all going to be susceptible to that. And the only thing you can do is like, just make sure, you know, make sure you've got a diverse set of news sources that you're looking at. Understand that these things might change. It's not that you did anything wrong, um, but that you may need to be. And here's the fine line. You may need to be a bit more critical in terms of what you're reading and and what you're and and having multiple sources that are coming in. But it shouldn't mean that you don't trust everything that you read. Right. Like, there are still, if if something is true, multiple sources are going to be covering it. You're going to be able to see a combination of, of um, facts and everything. And frankly, like, I'm excited for the point when AI, you know, in search, it's going to be able to pull for you every single article about a particular topic and give you this citation. So you don't necessarily need to go personally to the time site, the post, CNN, you know, whatever, Fox News, all those to get all those in. In some ways, AI is going to be able to help to aggregate all that for you, for you to be like, oh, okay, here seems to be common threads that everybody's reporting on. And so probably pretty safe to trust what's happening there.
1: So a uh, systems level question. Um, guests in previous weeks have been talking about how social institutions are going to be what are the fact checkers for the AI. And you and your research at the Bipartisan Policy Institute found that a lot of people actually do trust election officials and do believe in the integrity of the election system. And I'm curious, how do we maintain this good reputation? How do we continue to protect the integrity of election officials? What should they be doing? What should they be thinking about?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really great question. I think one of the things is, you know, coming out of the midterms, I think a lot of folks were like, oh, it wasn't as bad as we thought that it might be. You know, there weren't mass protests and everything. That didn't just happen overnight. That didn't just happen on its own. There's a couple of factors there. One, we have to remember that was a midterms. That tends to not be as volatile as a presidential election where everybody is focused on one particular race versus, in you know, in a midterm, it's there's a ton of Senate races and gubernatorial races and House races. So it's harder to get large groups of people galvanized around any one particular thing. Two, the election officials learned a lot from 2020, as did the tech platforms. And so there was a lot more coordination um, amongst them. There was also, we saw this last year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this concept of pre-bunking. So there was a lot more education ahead of the election about what the particular rules were in any given area, how ballots might be counted, what that process looks like, the types of narratives that you might see from people um, in the, either in the news or on social media and stuff like that. And so I think people were a bit more educated and aware of, of how this stuff actually works to have some faith in the, in the process and what is happening. And the biggest thing we need to do is make sure we don't take our foot off the gas pedal. It's concerning and continues to be concerning that there's not enough federal funding for elections and election officials. Uh, The Brennan Center recently put out another report. You know, election officials are still very scared of harassment and other potential forms of violence that could happen to them, that many of them are, are quitting their jobs. And so that's something for us to be for us to be concerned, concerned with. On this, And then I think the other thing, too, and I think overall, I don't there's no silver bullet on this, but as a society, we're reassessing our societal norms around what's OK when it comes to political speech, what candidates say um, and what the what the consequences should be for what they say, because a lot of the uh, information being pushed out there to so distrust in the election process was actually out there in the open. It's not like it was hidden it was them saying it you know it's candidates themselves saying it and other prominent figures um which means it's not necessarily about like uncovering it it's like how do you properly counter it um with that um and 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 try to do and that was part of the reason we did that survey was to try to figure out like where are the places that are people are going i think that the the most disappointing thing about that survey that's hard to figure out is like a lot of people on the right just don't trust anyone. Not even Donald Trump. Not, you know, not any party leaders. Election officials were still high for them um, in in the overall the overall process. But like that's gonna be a really interesting thing to be watching out for as we go into because let's remember the 2024 election actually starts in January with New Hampshire. It doesn't start in November. Well, depending on your party with New Hampshire. And everything else like that. Right. But like these and and frankly, in some ways, the primaries are going to be even a bigger challenge than the general. So we just need to remember that, like, it's an entire year long process next year, not just worrying about November.
2: I want to come back to something else you already also mentioned, and that is uh, regulation or regulatory regime. Um, you mentioned um, some legislation that's that's been introduced um and and I believe that was you might be referring to Representative Clark's legislation about um about making sure that there's transparency in um in political ads um, and and financing of of um AI generated content. Um, but we also know that Senator Chuck Schumer is circulating some sort of broad framework. Um, I wonder. You know, how are you thinking about um, what what legislators need to consider in a regulatory regime given the given how fast the technology is developing, and what kinds of questions should guide a regulatory framework?
0: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I think one of the things, too, is that while we don't yet have anything that's really passed at the u s. federal level, right, Um, in Europe, the DSA is starting to get implemented, um, which is the Digital Services Act. And that's going to be, I think, something that folks in the U.S. are going to, and already are, paying really close attention to how that is implemented and the effectiveness of that as we think about some of this stuff. And so, um, what I would say is that, first and foremost, to not be too prescriptive, because, as you said, technology changes really quickly. And so, You'll want to think about sort of how can you kind of skate to where the puck is going in thinking about this. I do think legislation around things like transparency is something that's really important to even just understand what the platforms are doing, as well as kind of thinking more about how do we institute various forms of oversight. There's government oversight. There's civil society oversight on government, on the tech platforms, like how do we build that structure so there's a way for having being able to open up new lines of inquiry, working with new companies as they're developing new technologies, et cetera, um, to be thinking about this stuff versus being like, like, it's fine to have legislation to be like political ads need to have a label that's if they're generated by AI, but that's so narrow, right? Like if we really want something, something that's comprehensive and this, and we, I'm not, a data privacy bill is also important. Like, there's so many different aspects to this. But those are, transparency and government oversight are some of the main places I would kind of look at um, for, for thinking about the right ways to do this in a way that could still be flexible for this speed and changing nature of technology.
2: Uh, on that, just a quick follow-up on that oversight question, you know, what existing executive agencies or even congressional agencies could actually provide oversight and enforcement?
0: So I think that, so there's the there's the, the government agency side, right? Like FTC, FCC, DOJ, all those currently have a lot of oversight. And like Lena Kahn's already said that she thinks a lot of the existing re- le- laws on the books can help them with, with some of the AI stuff. You know, on the congressional side, we've obviously had a ton of different tech hearings over the years of varying success. But I do think that like, um, in some ways, they are getting better. And I also think, too, that just the, the fact of Congress asking those questions um, and, and doing that, particularly when it comes to the executive branch and how the different things that they're doing, I think it is important to have that executive um, and congressional oversight as well as judicial. Right. The Supreme Court just last week ruled on Gonzalez and the Twitter cases. There's another case that's going to be before the Supreme Court around whether or not government um, officials and elected officials can ban people from their comments section, for instance, on social media. And then there's, of course, the question if they'll take up the Texas and Florida content moderation bills that we expect them to do. And so, you know, there's ways where branches of our government are also, I think, ramping up a bit more um, on also their levels of oversight in all of this.
2: The American Association of Political Consultants released a statement a few weeks ago that updated its codes of ethics, and it narrowly defines um, artificial intelligence, but stated in its codes of ethics that it has no place in legitimate ethical campaigns. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you see the field of predictive polling and predictive analytics developing and you know, what kinds of codes of ethics should um, the polling industry be thinking about, as especially as we move into twenty in, into the 2024 election, um, and thinking back to your experience at Facebook and the revelations about Cambridge Analytica and how poorly methods might have been used in that case, and then the state of the polling industry now?
0: Yeah, I, a, a couple things on that. One. If you read the AAPC statement super closely, I think their intention was really only around the ads like the RNC did um, after uh, President Biden announced his reelect in terms of like the deep fakes or just having AI generated video. But if I'm honest, I think AAPC was way too fast out of the gate with trying to declare like AI, like we shouldn't use it because I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Like, there's going to be a lot of ways you might want to use this and be beneficial and like let's just not all assume that it's all bad things and so i do think they i i think they let themselves some wiggle room on that in there um because i do think that it's going to have um in terms of like data you know working with data around how the best way to reach out to voters to be able to find supporters swing voters Different and analyzing that data, AI is going to be a huge part of being able to do that and do that quickly. And I think there are safe and ethical ways that we can do that. And that's the conversation we should be having. We should be having around that. Um, along with that, yes, we should actually be talking about people better understanding what data these entities have on them. Like, I, I always find it interesting that there's very little discussion about how much data political parties actually have on people. And there's no questions of how they're keeping that safe, how people, like, I can't call up the RNC and find out what data they have. On I can't call up the DNC and understand what they what they have listed um, on it, but we demand that of the tech companies. And I just think there should be some more universal rules in thinking about all of that. And I mentioned earlier about some of the other ways that I think AI can actually help campaigns. And so I think that, like, everyone's, AI is going to change jobs in all sorts of different sectors, and politics is going to be included in that. And the important thing is to have those conversations early on about what are the guardrails, what are the, ethi- the ethics we want to put into it, and how to, what's the right process for us to have these conversations about what those guardrails are um, very early on here in terms of adapting this stuff versus later on, which is one of the challenges we had with social media.
1: So going back to your previous comment uh, about the Supreme Court and content moderation bills, do you think there is any possibility that the Texas and Florida bills could make it to the Supreme Court and pass and have the ability to change how the Internet is structured, how content moderation is structured, and what kind of impact would that have on election in Texas?
0: So I think there is a very, very, very decent chance. They're picking up Texas in Florida. I think they wanted to kick the can down the road a little bit, um, especially to kind of see how the Gonzalez and, uh, Twitter cases went. Um, I do not see Texas and Florida faring well from a first amendment standpoint with this Supreme court. So I think it's likely for them to be, to be shot down. Um, that said, What really concerns me about this is that they're not going to hear arguments till this fall, which means a decision might not come down until we're in the middle of the election. And that terrifies me if if they're going to be making any huge changes, um, because that's that's just going to be there's going to be so many things that are going to that's going to cause the roller coaster to go up and down and spin around (laughs) next year when all of that all of that happens. And so. You know, with this Supreme Court, I don't feel like you should ever like nothing's guaranteed. But also, in saying there was the fact that they didn't touch 230, they they pushed the the Google case back, or the was it the Google case? No, the Twitter case back down. Either or, they basically left tech alone. They didn't change anything. So that and that and the that decision was unanimous. So that makes me think that like Texas and Florida probably aren't going to fare very well in this.
2: Well, Katie Harba, thank you so much for joining us on Politics as Everything. We really appreciate you sharing your insights and expertise about the many ways that social media, uh, but also artificial intelligence is going to impact our politics. Thank you also for the work you're doing to ensure the, continue to ensure the integrity of our elections.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Googie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.